Hey, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here's yours truly, Bill Widener. Listeners, Realty Speak turned two years old on February 23rd. Happy birthday to you. And I'm very excited to be starting year three with an extremely timely topic and two fantastic guests. And for our out of New York State fans, do not touch that dial. While today's show is about a New York thing, over-regulation of private property rights and its consequences, know this, it may come to a location near you soon. And if you are in California or Oregon, it already has. Recording bright and early Tuesday, March 10th from the law office of Kukka, Marino, Wynarski, and Bittens at 3rd Avenue and 47th Street around the corner from the UN complex. And I'm sitting with two of the name partners of the firm, Nativ Wynarski and Jim Marino. Thanks for being here today for me and the Realty Speak audience, gentlemen. Good morning, Bill. Good to be here. Great to be here, Bill. Thanks for having us. Nativ, you are a seasoned litigator whose practice is concentrated on the areas of complex commercial real estate and landlord-tenant litigation and appellate advocacy. You received a Bachelor of the Arts from NYU Stern and your law degree from Fordham University School of Law and have been with the firm for 24 years. Jim. You have been with the firm for 33 years, and you know your way around the workings of the Department of Homes and Community Renewal of New York, a.k.a. DHCR, like no other. In addition to court appeals against the DHCR, you have specialized in rent control and rent stabilization law, residential real estate law, cooperative housing law, rent overcharge and service complaints, demolition applications, and luxury deregulation, which, as we know, is now a thing of the past. You received a BA from Gettysburg College and your law degree from Brooklyn Law School. You are both sought-after speakers at real estate industry events and frequent contributors to law journals and news publications on the topic of housing law. That's an illustrious partnership and a long one as well. Tell us a little bit about that, Nativ. Well, I can tell you that my family has been in real estate for about 30 years. That was our family business. And so I've always been interested in real estate and landlord-tenant litigation. When I was in law school, I interned at the New York State Attorney General's office. Then I went to work at the Loft Board. And then I went to work at the RSA, the Rent Stabilization Association. While I was there, I actually worked at the desk, which was outside what was then Part 18 of the Housing Court. And I heard of the firm Cooker & Brew, and I knew them to be a very reputable firm who was supposed to be uh, one of the specialized firms in landlord-tenant litigation who did more of the high-end type and sophisticated type of real estate litigation. And so I was intrigued by them. And when I graduated law school, I worked in a big law firm. wasn't particularly enthralled with that at the time because they put me in the bankruptcy division as opposed to the promised real estate division. And I knocked on the door, rather I walked through the door of Cooker and Brew and I met Saul Brew. And I sat down in his office and I said, I'd like to work here. And he looked at me and said, well, we're not really hiring at this particular time. And I said, that's okay. You can pay me whatever you want to pay me, but I guarantee you that you're going to be satisfied with the result. 
And he told me he walked into the other name partner, Alan Cooker, and he said, you know, I have this kid in my office. I really don't know what I'm supposed to do with it, but he says he's walking through the door tomorrow. And so he came back and he said, all right, we'll have you start. You get paid 31000 I said, 32. He says, you got yourself a deal. And 24, 25 years later, my name's on the door. So it sort of worked out for everyone. Wow, that's great. That's great. <laughs> How about you, Jim? I started here as a second-year law student, as a paralegal. The firm was very small. They had started the year before, 1984. I showed up in the fall of 85. The firm just had three attorneys at the time. And I assisted them in whatever they needed me to do, mostly filing court papers on my way down to classes at Brooklyn. So I used to cut it pretty close with regard to getting to my, my afternoon classes. And as the years went on, third year law school, I started working here almost 20, 25 hours a week. I fell in love with rent stabilization and rent control law. It was a little bit of a niche, I thought at the time. It still is. My first task was a rent control MBR rent increase application, and I stared at it for a week before <laughs> figuring out what to do with it. I can process those pretty quickly now. Fairly unique area of law, a little difficult to understand when you're a rookie. I tell my younger associates now that it's going to really take about three years before you're really comfortable discussing it with clients and figuring out what to do with your cases. That first thing that you looked at for a week, that was a what? It was an MBR. What's an MBR? A maximum base rent. It applies only to rent control. It's a biannual application. As the years have gone on, rent control tenants have left. There's only about ten to 15,000 left in the city. So the MBR applications are kind of a, a niche within a niche, really. We still file them for clients, but they're becoming less frequent. But back in 85, they were more common. Well, both of those are great stories, and I didn't know that. I didn't know from whence you came. That's great. And uh, your name's on the door too, Jim. Yeah, it's my only job actually in the legal profession. So I've told my sons, if you need help writing a resume, I'm not your guy. <laughs> That's funny. All right, great. So listeners, today we are going to discuss what I suppose could be considered the laboratory for running an experiment on the regulation of private property rights. Take existing regulation, Mix it with multiple regulatory agencies, add some highly concentrated legislation, and let it sit for almost a year. What do you get? That's what you'll find out on this episode of Realty Speak. Let's get started. Jim, please share a quick overview with us of the state of affairs before the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019, aka HSTPA, and the state of affairs after it passed last June. It was certainly a bright line in June of 2019. Before the changes, we had a regulatory scheme that focused primarily upon the ability of landlords to get returns on their investment and at the same time improve the housing stock upon vacancy of tenants. The process would be where a landlord would secure a vacancy and be able to renovate the apartment and either obtain higher rent increases based upon the cost of improvements made to the apartment, or if the rent actually exceeded a certain threshold, um, would be able to deregulate the apartment and attain a free market status unit. Either way would enable the landlord to receive additional rental income based upon the fact that they obtained a vacancy. You also had the ability as a landlord during that time to be able to petition the agency if you felt that you had a high income tenant and the rent actually exceeded 
the deregulation threshold, and the agency would then check with the Department of Taxation and Finance and be able to determine whether the tenant's income exceeded the deregulation threshold, and then you would obtain an order from DHCR deregulating the apartment. And that was luxury deregulation? It's called high rent, high income deregulation, and the other basis for deregulation would be what's known as high rent slash vacancy deregulation. And what was that threshold before the law? It was about twenty seven seventy five would be the rental amount, and the income amount for high income deregulation would be two hundred thousand dollars for two consecutive tax years. And two hundred thousand dollars of what, like gross income, adjusted gross income? It's federal adjusted gross income as reported on the New York state tax return. But all this doesn't matter anymore, right? Because there's no more thresholds and there's no more high income deregulation and there's no vacancy deregulation. Correct. That's been changed now as of June 2019. There are still some claims to be made on the high income end of it. The agency threw out essentially all of the petitions that were pending as of June and said, well, we don't have deregulation anymore, so we're denying all these petitions. There's some constitutional arguments that we've made on behalf of clients where we filed administrative appeals immediately upon receiving these adverse determinations. So those are pending. We don't have any decisions on those yet. There is still the chance that we could obtain some deregulations uh, through those petitions. Certainly going forward, landlords are unable to file those. That tells us what it was before, and it tells us what it is after What else has happened since the passing of HSTPA? Well, on the overcharge front, which is a a pretty large front, the statute of limitations has been increased from four years to six years. So now there's more of a recovery time and more of a rent calculation time. In fact, the six years may not even be six years. It may be longer than that because the six years is tied to the filing of rent registrations. The agency is now focused on rent registrations. Landlords are, would do well to double check to make sure that they've had all their registrations on file. And if they haven't, then they should do that now. There's also the possibility of even a further look back. It's a little bit fluid here with regard to what exactly would trigger that look back. But essentially, looking at rent registrations going back, if there's some type of a, what they call an unexplained rent increase higher than what the guidelines would have allowed during that particular time period. That seems to be the trigger, at least as far as some of the court decisions that we've been receiving. Let me interject for a moment. Sure. We could review and analyze each and every aspect of the HSTPA, whether it's regard to overcharges or MCIs, IAIs, preferential rents. I think we can look at all of that from a micro perspective, and I think it is important to look at that. But from a macro perspective from looking at what the intentions of the legislature was, which was to preserve the housing stock of New York. To the extent that you want to argue that rent control or rent stabilization is a good scheme for preserving the housing stock, and every study that I've seen has said that's actually not the case, and there are many studies that have shown that the worst thing you can do to preserve a housing stock is rent regulatory control, But even to the extent that you want to argue that you should have this type of regulatory scheme, there were certain, I would say, bad actors within the system prior to 2019, and perhaps that's what the legislature was looking to curb. 
but what they did here and doing and doing what they have done and going to such a far extent is I think they've been very counterproductive to many of the goals to which they wanted to reach. For example, when you look at preservation of housing stock, when you take away MCIs, which they effectively did. Describe for our listeners what MCIs are. MCIs are major capital improvements. IAIs are individual apartment improvements. And these are where the landlord seeks to improve in some fashion either the individual apartment or the building in total. Previously, when a tenant was in possession for however many number of years, when that tenant vacated, the landlord had the incentive to sort of rehabilitate the entire apartment, put in new fixtures, put in new floors, new bathrooms, because he would get a certain percentage increase. And what that would do is that would actually improve the housing stock because most of the buildings you have to remember within rent stabilization are buildings that are 50, 70, 90 years old. Now when you take away, when you in essence limit it to um, $15,000, and anyone in the construction business knows that in order to improve a 1,000 or 2,000 square foot apartment, it's virtually impossible to do that on a $15,000 budget. What you're in essence doing is taking away the landlord's incentive to replace those fixtures, those old fixtures, and to rehabilitate the apartment. And so what you have is you have this old housing stock that's not going to be rehabilitated, that's not going to be replaced. And you're going to have individuals moving in to apartments in which you have old fixtures, old bathrooms, old floors. And really, that's not preserving the housing stock because ultimately this housing stock will be depleted. Violations will issue and the landlords won't have the money or incentive to cure these violations because they've been unable to recoup their investment. And so that's just one aspect of how it's been counterproductive. Before HSTPA, when one of these apartments became vacant, they would get a 20% vacancy bonus. They could also get something called a longevity bonus. How long was the longevity bonus? For any tenancy that was in existence for at least eight years. Eight years. So if someone was living in the apartment for 10 years, the landlord would get it was like 18, 20%. Yeah, you would, get, you would get an additional 6%. It's six-tenths of 1% for every year that the prior tenant was or actually measured from the last vacancy increase. All right. So theoretically, the uh, landlord would have been able to raise the rent 26%. Correct. Right. And then if they did an individual apartment improvement, then they were able to amortize that over a shorter period, and there was no limit on how much they could invest into the apartment. Right. So they could essentially- raise the rent 30, 35, 40% if they did all the right things. Yes. And then if it went over the 2775, at that point, they could deregulate it and just charge market rent. Yes, that was the intention. But now they can't do that. So now they have an apartment that they don't get a vacancy bonus. Maybe the tenant was there for 20 years. So that apartment certainly needs to be renovated. They're not getting a longevity bonus. And they're limited to amortize only a cost of $15,000 over a very long period of time. And therefore, it doesn't make sense for them to renovate the apartment because they're only going to be able to charge the rent that they were charging before, plus whatever the rent guidelines board says every year is the allowable increase for a one or a two-year lease. Is that correct? 
you don't even get the one or two year increase on for the first tenant coming in. You, you don't. No, you don't get that. So you so you actually have to charge. It's what the you same were rent as before. Ironic is not the right word. Perverse is probably a better word. And so put yourself in the shoes of the landlord for just a minute. Well, if I was the landlord, I wouldn't re-rent the apartment. Exactly. And that's why you're having this warehousing situation. So what's a warehousing situation? Well, certain landlords, because of the fact that they can't raise the rent and the apartment is clearly in need of repairs, so you have the choice of renting the apartment and then having violations issued as against the apartment for which you are liable to cure and get them and and have violations and penalties imposed, or you just keep the unit vacant because you don't want someone coming in complaining about the conditions of the apartment, which you don't have the financial incentive to cure, and therefore the apartment is left vacant, and therefore the whole purpose of the HSTPA, which was ostensibly to increase affordable housing, is completely reversed. It's removing affordable housing from the inventory. Right. Because the apartment is being left vacant. Right. And not that the landlord's necessarily choosing, but he's sort of being coerced into taking this position because he realizes that to put a tenant in at the same rent in which he's probably losing money and then have that tenant utilize the apartment and then subject himself to violations and penalties At that point, the landlord just has to make a judgment call. Is this worth it? Now, certain landlords are making that call and saying, okay, I'll still go ahead and rent it. And I think for in large part, that is certainly the majority. But there is a significant segment that's saying it's just worthwhile to keep it empty. And now lawmakers are coming out. There was a recent uh, proposal uh, by a city council member seeking to punish landlords or penalize landlords for keeping these apartments empty. And what's that called? It would be the equivalent to what the city's floating with regard to the empty storefront tax, a penalty because you're not re-renting as if it's the landlord's fault that they chose not to re-rent. There's no right now, there's no prohibition on it, but the response from the legislature or the city council is to create a prohibition and obtain tax money uh, because of that business decision on the part of the landlord. Look at another aspect of it, if you will. I remember before June of 2019, around April and May of 2019, I was heavily litigating a non-primary residence case in which an individual had a $2.5 million home in Florida, had a million dollar home in New Jersey, had another winter home in Vermont, and had a four-bedroom rent-stabilized apartment on the Upper West Side for which he was paying $1,500. And we were heavily litigating this case, and it was ultimately determined that he lived in this apartment perhaps 36 days of the year. And so because it was a four-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side, the landlord had a great incentive to seek to litigate the case and seek to reclaim possession of the premises. Now, when you say reclaim possession, the landlord property owner wanted to reclaim possession for themselves? No, he wanted to recapture possession and be able to rent it out. And what would have it rented for? It would have went to market value. And this is an apartment that was probably about $15,000 a month at market. Wow. 10 times the rent that he's charging now. 
and the tenant that's living there is obviously somebody who probably could afford the $15,000 a month. Probably more than that. Right. So what's happening here is you have somebody who's not really using the apartment. They're kind of using it as like their little city pedetaire. And somebody who can't afford typically to live in a four-bedroom apartment and has a family and could really use that four-bedroom apartment as a rent-stabilized apartment is not living there. And before June of 2019, you could litigate something like this, and then after, now you can't. So what happened with something that was already in process? The reason I raised this litigation is because the landlord had an incentive to seek to get back possession of the apartment and rent it to someone who sought to utilize it. But now, after the HSTPA, virtually all non-primary residences' cases are gone. There's no incentive to bring that case because you can't get a vacancy increase in any event. And so what happens, for example, if this person was if we had if this person was in possession today, knowing that he was only there 36 or 39 days a year, the landlord would say, "You know what? Let him be. Keep it." Because I have no incentive to start the case. I'm not going to get an increased rent anyway. And what you're doing is you're removing housing stock from the city. Because you're telling landlords, all these people, these thousands of non-primary residence cases which existed in the past, landlords are no longer going to commence. And what you're doing is, in effect, removing those apartments from the housing stock. So that's just another example of how the intention, whatever intention there was in implementing these laws, the result is actually the opposite of the intention. These are ramifications that the legislature didn't consider because they didn't take landlord input when they drafted and voted on the law. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. We go deep with so many topics on the show. The result? You get plenty of great information and strategies you can use. And what I learned from my guest as the creator and host of Realty Speak translates to me being the best I can be as a trusted advisor, consultant, and real estate broker. Remember, every transaction is different, and so are you, the people involved. A successful outcome will depend on execution of proper planning, and I welcome the opportunity to listen closely to your desired outcome and then carefully guide you through the process to ultimately achieve your goals. So, if you're contemplating a purchase into your portfolio or a sale out of your portfolio of a building or development site, or you would like to refinance, get a purchase mortgage or construction loan on investment real estate, then feel free to reach out to me. I can help you no matter where you're located. Happy to chat. No transaction required. Call me. The number, 917 232 8529. And all my contact info is on the contact page of my website, BillWidener.com. That's B I L L W E I D N E R.com. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. Share with the listeners the different agencies that you have to interact with here in New York City. I know there's the DHCR, which we talked about, Homes and Community Renewal. There's the RGB, which is the Rent Guidelines Board. 
There's the DOB, which is the Department of Buildings, DHPD, that's the Department of Housing and Preservation, Preservation and, Development. and Development, and the TPU, Tenant Protection Unit, the Loft Board, the Landmark. Wow. We're not short on agencies in New York City. And you have to interact with pretty much all of them every time. How does anyone navigate all this? Interaction is necessary because the agencies typically rely upon the findings and results of investigations and reports issued by the other agencies. DHCR is the main one. That's the rent agency. So that's the one that you're dealing with mostly. Mostly DHCR. Yeah, that's where the applications are filed by landlords to get certain relief. And that's where the complaints are filed by tenants to get certain relief. The Rent Guidelines Board is something that makes the headlines once a year in the summer. They meet and they issue the guideline increases for the following October. So explain that to us. Guidelines Board meets a few times a year and uh, they hold public hearings in the various boroughs and take public comment and they consider the costs that landlords are required to, to meet. Um, each year with regard to you know real estate taxes and fuel consumption and the operation and maintenance of the building. And then they consider tenants. Tenants are always asking for zero increases each year, sometimes negative increases. And then ultimately, they'll issue proposals and vote on it as a board. And you get a range of increases that are then finally voted upon. Current guidelines are 1.5% for a one-year lease. Two and a half percent for a two-year lease. The tenant gets the choice. And just in furtherance of that quickly, again, to illustrate how, and I think Jim's word is correct, perverse the system is, the RGB also does a study of what the increase in operating costs for landlords are on a yearly basis. Those average yearly increases have been five to seven percent, yet the increases that they've allowed are one to two percent. It's like catching a falling knife when you think about it. What the RGB is saying is, we know that your operating costs are in excess of the increase of which we are allowing, but we are not allowing the increases to match your increase in operating costs. Forget the idea of making an additional profit. Just to keep up with the expenses, they're still limiting the increases and not only limiting them, but making them at a level which is less than the increase in the operating cost on a yearly basis. Additional rent that a landlord could charge for the major capital improvements, MCIs, the individual apartment improvements, IAIs, the vacancy bonus of 20%, the longevity bonus of 6%. Now that all of these have gone away, there's nothing to supplement this difference between that 5 to 7% increase in expenses and the 15 to 2.5% that you can charge for a rent-stabilized apartment. Now, obviously, not every building has 100% stabilized apartments unless it's part of a affordable housing program. So the landlords do have some market rate apartments. So I'm thinking what that does is that puts pressure on the market rate apartments to go up. You hit it on the nail. So now everyone that's paying market rate is paying, you know, it's like when you go into a restaurant and you want to order the fish of the day and it says MP. Market price. If you want that fish that day, you're going to pay whatever it is. If you want that apartment, you're going to pay whatever it is, and you're going to supplement the people that are living. And you're going to be supplementing that guy that has homes all over the place. That's correct. So if I'm a market rate tenant in the city of New York, there's a good chance if I'm in a building that has a lot of rent-stabilized apartments that I'm going to be paying more rent on an annual basis 
so that I can supplement the amount of money that's not being paid by the rent-stabilized apartments so that the landlord can at least meet his expenses or her expenses. That's not fair to the market rate of tenants? No, it's not. Like you said, they have to supplement the shortfall. But now the legislature is thinking about what's known as this good cause eviction bill, which would also regulate the market rate tenants. That would completely eviscerate any possibility of the landlord making a profit on these buildings, which from my vantage point will only lead to the significant flight of capital from New York City. As a commercial real estate broker in the city of New York and in the state of New York, I'm already witnessing that. The decrease in volume of the actual number of sales of multifamily apartments in the city and the dollar volume has decreased substantially. And for those of you that are listening, if you want to know more about that good cause eviction bill, that Nativ just mentioned, actually have a blog on it on the website. So if you go to billwidener.com or realtyspeak.myc, it both goes to the same place. And you go to the resource blog, there's a blog there on that with links to the law, links to the bill, and also ways that you can help pose it if you don't agree with what that could actually bring to the income property real estate market here in the state of New York. And that's not just the city, that's the whole state of New York, right guys? Yes, and I can tell you it's a significant concern for not only individuals who already have properties in New York City, but we've already received call from investors outside the city who are thinking of investing in the city. And the first thing they want to talk about is what's going to happen with the good cause eviction bill and are there any workarounds to it? And so it's obviously front and center on investors' minds. We also can't forget the another class of landlord that can't make up the difference because they don't have market tenants. The smaller landlords, less likely to have enough market tenants, if any, in their buildings to make it up. Where are they going to get the additional income from? It was generally understood over the years. If you look at the rent guidelines, they've always been low to a certain extent. Even back in the 80s and late 70s when inflation was higher, Yes, the guideline increases were higher, but they still were not enough to help the landlords uh, accumulate enough rental income. It was always understood that there was a makeup, at least in the sense of MCI increases and IAI increases, and also vacancy increases. Before the statutory vacancy increases in 1997, the Rent Guidelines Board actually issued vacancy increases because it was understood that that was catch-up time for the landlords. Now that's been eliminated. MCIs have been essentially gutted because the amortization rate is so low and they've been made temporary. And the same with IAIs. The amortization rate is very low in addition to the crazy $15,000 limit on work done in, in an empty apartment. And they've also been made temporary. So there's no ability on the part of the landlord to, to do any type of a catch-up. And if the intent of the legislature was to drive those small landlords into the ground to the point where they have to default on their mortgages or they can't pay their real estate taxes, who becomes the landlord then? Either a bank who doesn't want to be a landlord or the city who does an in-rem proceeding. And we know how good a landlord the city is. All you had to do was look at the NYCHA situations over the last two years. So it's really bleak in, in terms of the future for, for small landlords. And I know a lot of small landlords and they are very, very frustrated. Because of all the agencies that I mentioned to you, this is a very difficult environment to navigate. And so if you're a small landlord, this is typically your family business. This is what you do. 
you live in your buildings, you take care of your buildings yourself, you hire local people to help you take care of the buildings for the things that you can't do. And then to put on top of that, having to navigate all of this to try and squeeze a little extra income out of the building makes it extremely, extremely difficult. The professional property owners that own hundreds or thousands of units and have an internal staff that takes care of all this for them, and they either retain a firm like yours or they have inside counsel, it becomes a little bit easier for them to to deal with it. It not only has it made it that much harder for the landlords on the operating side, but you also mentioned, you know, the bigger people are able to navigate this. My experience has sort of been to the contrary. I actually visited just about two weeks ago one of the largest landlords in in New York City. What he told me was, my pain now needs to become your pain. We have to share that pain because it's, it's painful for everyone involved. And what he means by not, by that is not only the decrease in profits, but really what the law has done is foster significant litigation. You know, you talk about the agencies and the involvement between the agencies. One of the aspects of the new law was that now tenants get to choose their forum, whether it be DHCR or the court system, whereas before DHCR, if it didn't have exclusive jurisdiction, it had primary jurisdiction. And what that allowed to do is if the tenant had an overcharge complaint or a condition complaint, what they they would do is they would file a complaint with the DHCR and the landlord could respond. Landlord wouldn't necessarily need counsel to respond to a tenant-initiated complaint, or they could, but it was a much simpler process. Now, to do these, to have these complaints shifted, all of them, to, let's say, housing court, well, first of all, it puts a tremendous burden on the housing court, which was already overburdened. You're having individuals, if it goes to Supreme Court, who may not necessarily have the expertise that DHCR had. You're getting involved in a discovery process, which didn't exist at the DHCR level. And attorney's fees are exponentially higher. And so all this has done is simply complicate that. Now, as you're aware, Bill, they were... A number of cases argued at the Court of Appeals on January 7th. One of them was the case in which Jim was involved, actually, the Colazzo case. I think he helped write the brief. And the um, that case is going to speak to the issue of can the court still defer to DHCR jurisdiction on all these type of overcharge cases? Because the decisions we've seen recently, based upon a new law, is that the courts are not going to refer these cases out to DHCR. Whether that's a correct or incorrect interpretation, there have been some lower court cases recently which said the court still retains the discretion to refer it out, but you've seen a lot more cases started in Supreme Court, you've seen a lot more class action cases that have been commenced more, there's a proliferation of them more than we've seen, much more than we've ever seen in the past. And hopefully we'll get some clarity from the Court of Appeals when the decisions come down in the near future. One of those decisions coming down. Uh, we're expecting them um, this month. I actually called the Court of Appeals on Friday um, and asking them what their expectations were. And they said decisions will be rendered on March 16th, March 22nd, or March 24th. That's generally when decisions are handed out for the month of March. And given that they're generally very good in issuing decisions within 60 days, uh, my expectations is we'll see it uh, this month. 
The Colasso decision will be interesting because that does speak to primary jurisdiction. One of the judges asked the attorney representing the landlord in Colasso, why should certain cases go to DHCR? Why can't the courts handle it? And the answer to that is very simple. The DHCR has been doing and administering rent stabilization and rent control for decades. They have their own body of administrative appeals decisions. They're hard to get. I can get access to them. Other people that specialize in this area can get access to them. Many of the litigators that go before the courts and raise the issue of rent overcharge, and that then has to be litigated, don't have access to those decisions. The courts and the court attorneys don't have access to those decisions, at least to the extent that one like me does. So explain to me how having access to those decisions help. Well, those show all of the applications of the general principles of law to all of the myriad of situations to which they can be applied. Decades worth of decisions. So when an attorney is in court and they cite a previous case and the decision on that case, that helps them with their case. Right. But what you're saying is that in housing court, the litigators don't have access to that information. Some litigators may, others may not. The point, though, is that these long-term principles of law applied to the myriad of situations now have to be essentially relitigated every time in either housing court or in Supreme Court. It's like starting all over. It's with, starting all over with again. each case. Absolutely. And that's, that's what it is. And what you're doing is you're, as Nativ had mentioned, you're overburdening an already burdened court system. And that's housing court. Supreme Court is a different, they may not be as overburdened, but you have judges who need to spend time on, let's say, a medical malpractice case, an important case. Someone is injured. Some remedy needs to be heard. And now they have to decide whether a landlord's entitled to a vacancy increase from 1982. It just doesn't make any sense for that judge to be burdened with that type of situation. It just doesn't. And in fact, what we've now been considering and advising our clients is you may want to consider taking cases out of housing court and commencing them in Supreme Court. Now, you may want to do that because you're not subject to RPAPLs, Article 7. So you could be able to get use and occupancy. There isn't a built-in system for overcharges. There isn't necessarily automatic representation as there exists in housing court. Automatic representation. And what was before that? Explain those two things to me. First of all, in housing court, if you live in certain areas, you get automatic representation. So the tenant gets automatic representation. That's correct. That doesn't exist in Supreme Court. You also have the fact that if a tenant's looking for an order to show cause in housing court, they walk into the clerk's office, they have the forms, there's a built-in system for that. doesn't necessarily exist in Supreme Court. It's virtually impossible to get use and occupancy in housing court. You're able to get it in What's Supreme Court. What's use and occupancy? When the case is first on, the tenant may ask for an adjournment uh, to get counsel, then the cases get adjourned again. And pursuant to the new law, as the cases get adjourned, months of rent are being built up and the landlord has no capability or rather ability to to get that rent. And so he asks for use and occupancy or rent while the case is progressing. And to the extent use and occupancy is ever ordered, it's only ordered going forward pursuant to the new law. That only exists in housing court. doesn't exist in Supreme Court. So if you're in Supreme Court and the tenant's asking for a adjournment, you can very well make that application 
the first time on. And by the way, in housing court now, pursuant to the new law, it actually has to be in writing, which just causes further motion practice and further expenses for the landlord. So you're saying that if you go to Supreme Court as the property owner, the tenant may not get that first or second or third adjournment, and you might be able to get through this a lot quicker. They may get the adjournments, but you'll, you should be able to collect your use and occupancy. Right, And I don't think you're going to necessarily lose the time because while it's called a summary proceeding, it has long lost its summary nature. And so while the time periods may in fact be the same, you may get better disposition. The result, I think, will actually be better in Supreme Court. The right to appeal goes to the appellate division as opposed to the appellate term. And I think the judges in the appellate division are more sympathetic to the landlords than the appellate term judges are, certainly in the first and second department, uh, second department being uh, Brooklyn and the other counties and first department being New York City. And so we have been advising some of our clients to consider com commencing their actions in Supreme Court. And all that's going to do is inundate these Supreme Court judges who, as Jim said, should be dealing with medical malpractice, construction cases. Now you're asking them to be landlord-tenant experts and doing something which they're not accustomed to doing. And like Jim said, you're sort of asking judges to issue decisions on subjects which they haven't issued before. They won't have access to these DHCR decisions. And so you're sort of relitigating all these issues. The sensible alternative to all of this would be for these cases to go back to DHCR. Yes. I mean, that was the intention in 1984 when the state took over the administration of rent stabilization in New York City. The intention was that that agency, they were the expert. And because of the law, there is a higher volume of overcharge cases and complaints by tenants. If it came out of housing court or Supreme Court and everything was being administered by DHCR, what kind of stress would that put on DHCR? I mean, are they prepared for that? Well, DHCR is, my understanding, it's the second largest agency in the state. So they have a big budget. They have a lot of people working there. And this is all that they do, all that they do. Because everything I hear and read is that when a tenant is dealing with DHCR or a landlord is dealing with DHCR, that it goes on for a really long period of time. Like, like it could be like two, three, four, I've heard five years. They do have their backlogs and it varies by case and by issue. Some cases take longer than others. Some cases only last a few months there. What we'll see, and just as a prediction, but I think it's an informed prediction, you'll have the same length of time in cases in court. Eventually that will happen because they won't be able to handle it. Again, you're talking about judges in parts, and it's a limited number of parts. At the DHCR, you have the ability to expand quickly with regard to processors and supervisors. They're able to meet the demand better if there's a higher influx than the court system would. What are you going to do? You can't build. There's no more room for any parts in housing court. So you've got limited capacity there, and the backlogs will increase. I think we're already seeing that. Not only will the length of time for these cases be similar, whether it be in DHCR or, or the court system, but more importantly, it'll be infinitely more complex and certainly more expensive. Because whereas in DHCR, 
you didn't necessarily need counsel if you had counsel again because of the absence of discovery it wasn't as complex but now you if you're going to be in supreme court on a overcharge case or a class action overcharge case discovery process itself will take two three years and the cost of litigation will come to the hundreds of thousands of dollars and mind you you're going to need to spend that money because of the fact that now they are reviewing records going back. Well, there may not be a limitation, however long they do go back. So the amount of the overcharges is not going to be limited anymore to the four-year statute of limitations. And you're going to have a significant amount of overcharges in play, as well as attorney's fees, which are no longer discretionary. So tenants' counsel has the absolute incentive to commence these cases in Supreme Court because they'll probably get their uh, higher fees in Supreme Court than in housing court. They'll litigate the case. They'll utilize full discovery. It'll take years to reach fruition. And ultimately, there'll be years of litigation and hundreds of thousands of dollars of litigation expenses and untold numbers of uh, potential exposure. You said before, Nativ, that your property owner that you met with, a large property owner, indicated that their pain now has to be your pain. This sounds to me like it's very painful for everyone involved, the court system, the DHCR, the property owners, and the people living in the buildings. And why are we doing it this way? We've got to this point because there was a perception that there was harassment going on in the city. That's, that's where this comes from. And there probably was some harassment going on. If there was harassment going on, and I would agree that there was most likely some, it was very small. Where are these cases? Where are these incidents? The reporting on it was non-existent. My caseload doesn't include these bad harassment, alleged harassment situations, but someone had the ear of the legislature and someone had convinced the legislature that there were bad actors out there that needed to be stopped. And this is the method that they chose. Instead of higher enforcement, instead of bolstering up the TPU, the tenant protection unit at DHCR, or creating some other agency that can swoop in and investigate harassment claims, you have this. You have it uh, attempted to do it on, on, on a scale that it assumes that every landlord is harassing every tenant in the city, and that's just simply not the case. And when you have that perspective floating around the media, it actually gives people the impression that that's really the way things are when, as you just described, they're not. And so the legislature created a one-size-fix-all solution for this, and it doesn't sound to me like it's really fixing anything for anybody. One example. You mentioned the word solution, and you mentioned the word fixing. The new law says that if a landlord rents to a service agency who then rent to homeless individuals, and we know there's a homeless problem in New York City, that those homeless individuals now become tenants. That's an aspect, actually, of the new law that has not been discussed or been largely publicized. That's interesting that you're bringing that up, and I'm really looking forward to hearing all about that because 
on one of my previous podcasts, I actually talked with one of those not-for-profits, and what they did is they would do a master lease on a building. That's correct. And then they would receive rent from the city of New York, and then they would pay that rent, I guess less a profit, even though it was a not-for-profit agency, they have to run their organization, and then they would pay the landlord, and then they would house people that were homeless into this transitional housing before they got a permanent residence. So you're telling me that this person now that goes into this transitional housing and is meant to be there for a month or two months or whatever it happens to be, they have different rights? That's correct. Now they become rent-stabilized tenants. Let me tell you how that law came into effect. The law came into effect because of a case that I litigated and won at the trial level. It's an exact circumstance which you just described. So my client had a number of buildings in Brooklyn, and it was part of what was known as the cluster site housing. What the city did, city is in need of housing. The city has an obligation to house everyone within 24 hours of a request to be housed. And so because of the lack of housing, they would call certain landlords and say, do you have any units available? And they would put these individuals, these homeless individuals, they would set them up with this service agency, which is to provide services, temporary housing, and also help them find permanent housing, help them with job support. They would place these individuals in possession. And what the city did is they placed hundreds of these individuals in possession of these various buildings throughout. And at some point, the city decided, we no longer want to do cluster housing. The landlord said, okay, that's fine. You need to remove the occupants then. And the city took the position, no, we're not going to remove the occupants. They're yours. So who's paying the rent at this point? Before that, the city was. And they're paying it to who? Directly to the landlord? They were paying it to the service agency. And the service agency was paying the landlord. No, there's a wrinkle to this. The wrinkle, which makes the story even more interesting, is that in order to get paid, the city has to register the contract. The comptroller has to register the contract. HRA or DHS submits the contract to the comptroller and the comptroller has to register it. In my case, what happened was the city begged the landlord to put these individuals in possession. They promised payment. They never made the payment because they submitted the contract to the comptroller and then they withdrew it. They withdrew it on two occasions and then when the landlord said, well, I'm out $18 million, the city said, well, the contract was never registered, so we don't owe you the money. So that's part of a separate lawsuit that we're presently involved in with the city. We don't have the result of that yet. No, not yet. But needless to say, one of the arguments we're making is frustration of purpose, meaning you can't claim that the contract was never registered when it was the city themselves that withdrew the contract. Just, just think of the conduct of the city in this case. But putting the payment issue aside, what the city also did is saying, these individuals which are now in possession are your tenants, they're rent stabilized, and by the way, we think they have overcharge claims. And what happened was, at the lower court level, the judge agreed with our position saying, no, these people never had leases. They never paid their rents. They don't qualify as tenants. They're not your tenants. And the city had the obligation to remove them. And you can't impose them upon the landlord. So we won. That was back in April of 2019. And as a result of that, the law was changed in June 
that these individuals will now be rent-stabilized tenants. So part of the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act spoke to this particular this situation right. and, and changed the law and actually reversed what you won. Well, they're on appeal now and the tenants are taking the position. By virtue of the new law, they should be tenants. Without getting into the arguments there, the reason I brought this up is because now we have clients who are considering entering into contracts with the city or with the, the nonprofit agencies to let in these homeless individuals, but they call me and say, Nativ, if I let in these individuals, will they be rent-stabilized tenants? And the response is yes, to which their response is, well, then I guess I'm not going to enter into these contracts. So what's happened to all these housing agencies? Well, you have situations now where you had landlords who in the past would have been willing to allow these individuals to come in with the expectation that they could provide the services and they'll ultimately get paid. But now they're taking, you know, they're taking a, a, a very um, dim view of this and say, why should I enter into these contracts if there's a possibility that the city will remove themselves and leave these individuals in possession and now they'll be rent-stabilized tenants? So with that being the case, landlords have been running away from these contracts. So what the legislature sought to do in creating this laws was to help correct the homeless situation and give them rent-stabilized rights. But again, the result is the exact opposite because no landlord in his right mind with these laws now being in effect will consider entering into these contracts knowing that if the third-party agency seizes operation, these all these homeless occupants automatically become rent-stabilized tenants. Cluster housing, correct me if I'm wrong, means that it's some apartments in a building that is occupied by regular tenants. Correct. Could be a combination of rent-stabilized and market-rate apartments, all market-rate or rent-stabilized, but these are vacant units in those buildings. So so these vacant units in cluster housing were put into this inventory for homeless people in transition, and you said the city didn't want cluster housing anymore. So now the only way that this would happen, even though landlords probably wouldn't do it, is if they lease the entire building. A net lease building. A right. net lease building. Which is also counterproductive if you think about it, because if you were a homeless individual, you would think you'd want to be in with the general population, whether it be rent regulated or market rate units. But now you're being compelled to be in a building with where everyone else is homeless and there may be cer certain situations or conditions that exist among everyone that doesn't make it as desirable a place to live as if you would have been in with the general population. I think it hurts everyone in the end. A reduction in inventory to house homeless people in transition. That's an interesting consequence. Right. That's the result of that. Nativ, I know you wanted to talk a little bit more about the good cause eviction bill, which is Senate Bill s 2892B. And right now, where is that in its process? There has been a lot of noise regarding this good cause eviction bill, what I would actually term the universal rent control bill. I know it started with four sponsors in the Senate and now has 23 sponsors. That's 23 out of 40 Democrats. And the Senate has 63 members, so it's creeping closer to getting that majority vote in the Assembly. And now has 57 sponsors out of 106 Democrats, out of a total of 150 in the House. So again, it's creeping forward towards um, 
a passage. And my understanding is that, well, we know it made its way to the Judiciary Committee as of early February. But my understanding is that it's not going to be included in the budget. That's the intel that I'm receiving. And if it's not included in the budget, and given the fact that it is an early legislative session because of the primary season, which means as opposed to last year where the legislature and session ended in late June, this year it's going to be around June 2nd or June 4th. So the early predictions, and it's only a prediction, is that it may not make it this year, but it certainly will be possibly uh, likely on the table next year. But I think people need to voice their opinions and get in touch with their assembly members and senate members and speak to their position on it. We do have clients calling now and trying to get prepared in the event it passes because unlike June 2019 with the HSTPA when no one saw it coming to the extent that it did, people now realize that laws can change in the blink of an eye. And therefore, you have large property owners who are saying, well, what can we do? We've been telling them a few things. First of all, there's some confusion as to whether the good cause eviction bill will apply to vacancies. And my reading of it is it doesn't. It only applies to actual tenants in possession. I've had clients call me and say that they've heard from other attorneys that it does apply to vacancies. And my reading of it is clearly it does not. Second question we get is what will the increases be? As the bill is presently drafted, it's 3% or the difference in the regional CPI, whichever is less, the lesser of. All right. So let's say CPI is 2%. What would be the calculation for that? So if the CPI is 2% and it jumps to 3%, which is a 1% difference, if you double that, that's 2%. So then you have the options of a 3% increase or 2% and it would be the lesser of. So in that case, it would be 2%. That means that the property owner would be limited to raise the rent on a market rate unit of 2%. And I understand this This covers everything. Like if someone owns a condo on a condo building and they're living in Florida, they're renting it out in the city, or they have a co-op and they're renting it out, or if they have a vacation home. I heard this even impacts vacation homes. What happens if you rent a vacation home for June and July and August, and then you want it back in September? That industry is over. And people have already been looking for an exemption to vacation homes. But as it's presently written, if you rent out a residence in which you primarily occupy, that is subject to the law. So I can't see anyone renting out their home for, let's say, the summer in the Hamptons anymore. Because if you did, you're giving a life estate to the person coming into possession. And not only does it destroy that industry... But also, if you think about it, if a person, again, puts in improvements in the apartment, they can't recoup that. There's no accounting for those improvements. And so what we have been advising our clients is to start accounting for this in your leases. So, for example, the way it works, the mechanism is that you will charge a certain rent and it's the obligation on the tenant to challenge that rent if they believe it was unreasonable, the rent increase. Tenant goes into court, challenges the rent, saying you can't evict me. There was an unreasonable increase. The only way that increase can go in excess of the 3% or the difference in CPI is show that there was a necessity for that increase. How one goes about doing that, not defined in the law. One thing to consider 
is instead of commencing the case in housing court, do what we talked about, which is commence the case in Supreme Court. Now, why would someone do that? Because if you bring a plenary action in Supreme Court, where you're not seeking an eviction, you're simply seeking the money, then the bill doesn't apply to you. Because the bill is called a good cause eviction bill, meaning that's only in response to a lawsuit seeking possession or eviction. So if I have a market rate unit of 3000 and I believe now the market rate is 5000 so I charge the 5000 which is clearly in excess of the 3% or the difference in CPI. So if I start a plenary action in Supreme Court where I'm not seeking possession, I'm simply seeking the money, the bill would not be applicable to you. So that's a little bit of a workaround. That would be a workaround. And again, it would cause the proliferation of these lawsuits in Supreme Court. And what happens here is it just adds another layer of complication to the ownership of rental property in the state of New York. So probably the best thing is for Senate Bill S-2892B to hopefully not get passed this year and not even be on the table for next year. So the way to do that, listeners, is if you own property or live in New York State, then you are eligible to voice your opinion. You just go to realtyspeak.nyc, go to the resource blog, look for the blog on the Senate bill, and all the information on how to voice your opinion is there. And we strongly urge you to voice that opinion because our greatest fear is that if this does pass, you can close the lights on New York City. Well, with that said... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it got dark in here. Really yeah, fast. really. Uh, with that said, are there uh, any best practices or opportunities in this environment? And, you know, and again, I, I just want to say, you know, this is a New York thing, but everybody that's listening that's not in New York, uh, this could be coming to your town soon. And I hope that you're really taking note of everything that we've discussed here today and you're k- keeping a vigilant watch on what's going on in the housing and political environment in your community, in your county, in your state, to hopefully put up a roadblock before some of these things come from the sidelines and take you by surprise. So, Jim, tell us what those best practices and opportunities are in this environment. Sure. Well, there are two opportunities, so to speak. The first is a little less likely because the need to have an almost vacant building, but that's called substantial rehabilitation. With substantial rehab, what you're essentially doing is creating something just short of a new building. New buildings under the law, unless you take tax benefits, are not subject to rent stabilization. The same holds true for substantial rehabilitated buildings. But what you need to have is a building in sub, what they know as substandard condition. Now, that means basically a place that nobody would really want to live in. And, and really, nobody can be living in that building, right? Right, almost. I mean, there are still uh, exceptions to it. And basically, the exception is if you've got 20% occupancy, it means 80% vacant, you'll have what's known as prima facie proof of substandard condition. So if you had 20% occupancy, and that 20% occupancy was rent-stabilized apartments, and- you talk to everybody and said, hey, you know, we're going to move you around a lot, but you're still going to have a rent-stabilized apartment, and then you substantially renovated that building, then these people would have 
rent stabilized apartments. They, yes, they in, would still in, be grandfathered. Yes. Right, in a new building. But the other 80% would be market rate. Yes, that's correct. Right. And what you would do is you would do the work necessary, which would mean replacing or making as new at least 75% of the building systems, systems being the heating, the plumbing, the gas supply, the intercom, the roof, the facade, new kitchens and bathrooms. You know, you basically want to make almost a new building here. Theoretically, you could do that without even moving anyone around. Right. You can leave the people that are there in place. Sometimes it's better to move them around for construction purposes and maybe even move them out temporarily and then move them back in again at the landlord's cost so that this way the work could be done in a more efficient way and you can actually reach the inside of those tenants' apartments as well. What you would do then, what we recommend is you file an application with the DHCR to get an order determining that the building is exempt based upon the substantial rehabilitation. It's not required that you get an order, but we recommend that you do it sooner rather than later while everything is fresh in your mind and you've got all the documentation needed to support the application. So what would happen when the rent-stabilized tenants started moving out? Uh, Then the the next tenant moving in there would be uh, deregulated. So you could end up with a 100% market rate building over a period of time. Yes, that's correct. It's it's just short of a new building, which would certainly be immediately a deregulated uh, situation. And then have subject to uh, universal rent control. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, Yeah. because it could could cause eviction, right? Right, right. exactly, exactly. Uh, That that comes swooping in. You know what? we have a sense of humor. And yeah. you have to. Right. You, right? Have, you to. have to have a sense of yeah. humor in this environment. Yeah. You really yeah. do. You really do. Okay, so that's one opportunity. And you were interviewed for an article in City State. Came out, I believe, on February 24th, and that was on First Rent, Jim? Yes, that's correct. Tell us about First Rent. First Rent is, I guess, what we consider to be the baby brother of substantial rehabilitation because it's a smaller look. It's on an apartment-by-apartment basis rather than the building as a whole. What the first rent principle uh, is based upon is the lack of what's known as a base rent for the apartment. Base rents are the essence of rent stabilization, at least on the rent side. Rent overcharges, when we talk about a four-year or now a six-year statute of limitations, that six-year period is starts at what's known as the base rent. That's where you start your rent calculations from. Right. And the rent calculations would be based on any MCIs or IAIs or or vacancy bonuses or longevity bonuses that you're able to do pre-Housing right. Stability and Tenant Protection Act. And then whatever the Rent Guidelines Board said after that, right? Yes. And, th- and that's how you would calculate f- uh, from your base rent to what the rent should be now. And then the difference between that and what the uh, tenant has been paying would be considered the overcharge. Yes, that's correct. Earlier in the podcast, you mentioned about the base rent is based on registrations. Now, what if a landlord didn't do their registrations? And you said something about going back. Well, that's a very important thing for landlords to do now is get a printout of their registrations for their buildings and look for any gaps, any missing filings, and then to the best of their ability, file those registrations now. The sooner that's done, the quicker it gets worked into the records, and then hopefully you'll never get a complaint. But if you do at some point in the future, you'll have the benefit of acting in the past, which is the current present, to have those registrations on file and begin to work to your benefit. So the baby brother of substantial rehabilitation is is the first rent principle is the first rent right, principle right. and and so what you're doing now is you're establishing a first rent right which is a new base date 
basically for the actually I don't want to say new base date because it is the base date for the apartment that did not exist previously. I guess then you could do this with two previously or three previously or whatever rent stabilized apartments. Well, explain that one first and then explain what happens if one of the apartments that you use to do this new base rent is market rate and one is rent stabilized. It applies to a number of different situations. The best example would be when you combine two or three apartments together and create a larger unit. Those three units may have existed previously, but now you're combining them together and you're creating a unit that did not exist before. Now, is there a disadvantage there in terms of the number of units now in the building? You have to change the CO? My understanding, you have to consult with your architect before you do anything of this nature, but that would not trigger the need for a new CFO because you're not increasing the number of housing accommodations, you're actually decreasing the number. In cases, maybe when you're dealing with combinations on the first floor, there may be some differences there. If you have a commercial space or if you're taking commercial space and creating residential space, you may need a change in the CFO. But for the upper floors, I don't believe you need it, but check with your architect because they're the experts on that. So you don't have that unit in existence previously, so you have to start your calculations somewhere. And the principle states that you start your calculations from the first rent charge to the first tenant of the new unit. Then if someone took a one bedroom and a studio, for instance, and they put them together, and these were two previously rent-stabilized apartments and they were rented out for a combination of $2,000. And now this new apartment, its current market value is $4,500. The new base rent or the base rent, as you mentioned before, is going to be $4,500. However, because these were previously rent-stabilized apartments, that's still a rent-stabilized apartment for the new tenant, which means that ongoing, the rent will only be able to be raised from that newly established base rent, whatever the rent guidelines board says on an annual basis. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. The new unit would become rent stabilized. The initial rent would be a market rate, but subject to rent stabilized increases thereafter. Let's say the studio was market rate and the one bedroom was rent stabilized. When you put those two together, you're going to have that same scenario I just described? It would still be rent stabilized. The status of the previous units is not relevant to the equation. What's relevant is what the law states at the time that the apartment is created, and that law now states that the units will be subject to rent stabilization. To the extent that you believe there was some relief here for the landlord, and as Jim described, there's one aspect in which you can possibly get this new rent, there is a legislation being proposed in which all these new units which have been created with new regulated rents the new rents would be retroactively applied so that the landlord couldn't get these new rents. Yeah, this is something that the state agency, the commissioner of DHCR has indicated is in the pipeline. So would this be state law? It would be a state regulation. A state regulation. We don't know what it's going to say, obviously. Uh, they haven't told us. Presumably, they would be gutting the first rent principle and by principle, I don't mean the result. I mean the legal theory behind it and actually looking at the rents of the old units to determine what the rent of the new unit would be. I'll be more than happy to read it and be educated by what they say. But 
I don't think that that's the correct approach. I'll give you an an example. When you have a one-bedroom apartment and you combine it with another one-bedroom apartment, you don't get a two-bedroom apartment. So you're not double, you can't just say, okay, $1,000 for the first one bedroom, $1,000 for a second. So now you can charge $2,000. It's not a two-bedroom apartment. It's a three-bedroom apartment because you don't need two kitchens. You take one kitchen away and you create another apartment. So now you got a three bedroom. So you can't just you can't just take the two rents and add them together. It's a whole new dynamic. So that's one thing that I hope that the regulation addresses. I have my doubts that they're going to be thinking along those lines. That's one thing. The second thing is something I'd like to mention from the article. What the first rent principle does on the supply side of this, which is the tenants, is it keeps families of upper middle class means to be able to live in Manhattan as a family. There are plenty of two-bedroom and three-bedroom apartments in New York City. They're all in glass and steel buildings. They all go for at least $6,000, $6,500 a month. Upper middle class people can't really afford to pay that as rent for an apartment, but they can pay $4,500 a month or $4,000 a month. And that's the market for these particular units. So to gut the first rent principle means you don't want families living in Manhattan that have moderate or upper middle class means. That's what I take from the first rent principle. Where are we with this? I mean, is this close or is this far away? Is there a way to oppose it? It's difficult to oppose it because there's no lobbying that could be done to the DHCR. It's being done internally. What hopefully will happen is that they'll publish it as a regulation and they'll give comment period. And then that's when the landlord groups and individual landlords will need to go and speak and write to the DHCR commissioner and voice their concerns. Obviously, we don't know what it says, so it's difficult presumably they'll be looking at the rents of the prior units. So that's something that landlords need to be ready to oppose. Well, I don't suppose that we could be more thorough than that. I mean, Jim, Nativ, we could go on for another hour for sure, but our time together is drawing to a close. And before we go, I have one more question for each of you. And when I ask this question, you could probably have a dozen answers, (laughs) but... If something in the real estate world changed forever, you woke up tomorrow and something in the real estate world had changed forever, what do you wish that would be? Jim? I would hope that if there are perceived problems that the legislature was determined to resolve, that they would handle it on an individual basis. I think that the broad brushed approach that we saw back in June was not thought through correctly, did not take opinions of the landlords who were essentially shut out of the process. And that those two things, just looking at it one-sided was a mistake and trying to handle all these perceived problems at once was also a mistake. If I woke up tomorrow, I would like to see at least a declaration by the leaders of the state legislature that they're going to handle it in a different fashion. Nativ? So I'm going to give you two answers, if you don't mind. No, go right ahead. The first thing is perception. I don't know how it came to be that now we have all these individuals who are running for mayor and running for various public offices, and their position is they no longer accept money from the real estate industry. Think about that concept. Now, it used to be that they wouldn't accept money from criminals. Now they've attached the real estate industry to bad actors. How did that come to be? How did the real estate industry 
conflate with these various bad actors. Because my perception is, and I look at my own family history, where I know my father drove a taxi until he was able to afford to buy his own first building. And then he's someone like many small landlords who are very involved with the personal lives of the tenants and try to create a, a relationship that's beneficial to all. And now these individuals, these hardworking individuals, many of them immigrants, many of them first-generation individuals who try to make a business and own property, which is initially the Constitution was, was going to say the ability to for life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. These individuals who only sought to better their lives and better their lives of others are now being looked upon as individuals who politicians can't accept money from because it's dirty money. So I would look to change the perception and uh, the way these the landlords are perceived in the city. What would you like that perception to be? I would like perception to be tagged to reality. And that reality is that 95%, certainly all the landlords that I know we represent, are individuals who are only looking to better New York City by providing good quality housing stock. And when did that become a bad word? When did that be landlord become a bad word? When all they try to do is, are they looking to have some profit? Yes, but so do we all. Are they looking to squeeze profit? Are they looking to are they looking to harm tenants in the process? No, that's not the case. What they're looking to do is upgrade housing, provide housing, and provide a better New York. And it disturbs me greatly that the perception is not at all tied to reality because what the media has done and what certain advocacy groups have done is they've taken one or two bad actors and say, see this, this is the typical landlord, when that's simply not the case. And the second thing I would say is I'll end where I began, which is, if you were to ask me what I would like to change, is that again, if you look at almost every single study that has been done on rent control and rent regulation, one finds that it harms the housing stock, that it deprives people of the ability to, um, to own, that it drives up rents. And so I would hope to see that we, you know, in a utopian world, where we would revert to capitalism. And the, the good old laws of supply and demand and these regulatory laws would just eviscerate. Now, we do have certain challenges right now that are presently in court seeking to challenge the rent control laws in their entirety. What will happen? I don't know. But the fact that they are being fought and they're being fought vigorously now for the first time that I've seen in decades, hopefully that will lead to some positive results. Gentlemen, that was remarkable. Thank you so much for sharing all of that incredible information with the Realty Speak listeners today. And you did talk about some litigation that is in process where some decisions are going to come around. We'll come back and we'll talk about that in another episode. And also, there's a lot of things that we didn't get into in terms of the affordable housing programs like 421A and the Legacy 421G and the J51. <laughs> and we just don't have time for it. We just don't have time for it today. However, I'm sure some of the listeners are going to want to be able to reach out to you folks. And what's the best way to get in touch with you, Jim? You can go to our website, Coco Marino, when you're asking Vittens. It's under cocomarino.com. There's a contact link there. Be happy to respond to inquiries. Right. And then if they search on the attorneys page, they can find both of you there. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
That's a nice picture in the team on the website. Yeah, you, actually, yeah, actually, both <laughs> you guys have nice pictures. Yeah, Nativ, same thing. Yeah, same thing. Just uh, cookamarino.com. Call, email us. We we're very responsive and be happy to take any questions anyone has. That'll all be in the show notes, Realty Speak fans. Well, there you have it. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so right on the website. Just go to the podcast page there and you'll see an opt-in option at the top of the page. Or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app, like Podcast Republic, my favorite on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform or just spread the word on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.